0: All right, well, uh, we are at the final week of this series, which has created quite a bit of discussion, great discussion, uh, not just in our church, but in our community as we invite uh, the community around us to give us one more try. There are so many people who have been a part of church, maybe in their youth and for whatever reason, they either drifted away from church or um, angrily left the church because they were hurt, they were disappointed or disillusioned. And, and what we're saying during this month is that, um, you know, give it a try. Let's, uh, let, let's discover what that might mean to, to reconnect um, because the mainstream, Christian, the mainstream American culture and the Christian church have been at odds in profound ways, and it's getting worse over these last uh, several decades. And so we're exploring what that might mean to bridge that divide. Before I do, I wanna just uh, confess to you and my wife, I think she's in this service, that I was a terrible, terrible um, early date for my wife when we were uh, just meeting. I was a horrible, horrible um, person when it came to that dating relationship. Uh, We had met in 1991, the summer of 1991, and uh, I was working here at Rancho in the youth ministry, pursuing a ministry vocation, and I was going to uh, Biola and commuting and uh, she was going to U- uh, UCR, and, uh, and she was living with her parents over the summer, and so she volunteered in 1991 in our youth groups over the summer, and we connected, and we met, spent some time together. Uh, the youth group put us together, and we started dating a little bit over the summer. Well, she went back off to school, and, um, and my head was just not in the right place for a long-distance relationship. It wasn't even long-distance. She was 40 minutes up the road. It's kind of mid-distance, right? If, if she was not right in front of me, it was, she just wasn't in my head, and that's, just, that's my problem, right? And uh, so I was a terrible mid-distance, uh, you know, dater, and I wouldn't call her that much. We would even set time, set dates where she would, you know, come from school on a weekend, and I would cancel at the last minute. I mean, just bad stuff. And you're laughing at me. (laughs) I, I, I deserve it. It's the truth. It's totally the truth. Well, this happened for a period of several months, and my wife's mom pulled her aside after one of these cancellations and said, you know, he's a bozo, and he's just not with it, and there's a better man out there for you, and you just need to move on. Now, my wife, thank God, my wife gave me one more try. She said, no, I'm going to give him another try, and we had a little conversation, and, and I had to confess, and my head just wasn't in the game. And my excuse was, you know, I'm in ministry basically full-time, school full-time, I own a business, I'm mean, just doing a lot of stuff, but I also wasn't really in, in the emotionally mature state to be able to give myself fully to a relationship. But I knew I, I, I had to, and I knew she was the one. I knew, I mean, I loved her, and my heart was with her, and so I had to reprioritize, get my act together. Now, fortunately, the rest is history. Um, about a month after I got my act together, we started talking about a life together, and a few months after that, we were engaged, and I mean, was, this was just the thing. I just had to make some adjustments because I was missing out on something powerful because I was a, a bozo, and this is the one time I agreed with my mother-in-law. I was a bozo. Now, just to be clear, my mother-in-law probably is still telling my wife, leave the guy. I don't know, but <laughs> anyway... So what we're saying is as a church, as the American church, or as the Western church, we've made some mistakes. We have been bozos. We have not done what we really should be doing. And as a result, we have driven a wedge between the church and the mainstream American culture. Much of it has been our fault. So over the past several weeks during our January series, we've talked about several things the church has done to create that rift between American culture and the Christian church. And so week one, we talked about the church being known for petty infighting. And so what we're saying to the community is, hey, give church one more try. Here, you'll find a loving church unified around our common mission to advance the cause of Christ. And we think, hey, this unified culture, despite our differences, different backgrounds, our diversity, we're coming together in unity towards the cause of Christ, we think you'll like it here. We too, we confess that the church is known for checking our brains at the door, right? We just wanna come and sit and believe everything the pastor tells us, not really think through things. And so we say, hey, give church one more try. Here, you'll find a church that thoughtfully considers life and faith together in a humble and diverse learning community. Week three, we talked about the reputation that the church is known for disregarding science. You know, we, we are adverse to science. We just have our nose in God's word, whatever it says, you know, and I get that, but there is a lot of ways that God speaks, and we detailed that in God's word. God speaks in nature as well, so we say, hey, give us a try. Here, you'll find a church that has a love for learning, for discovery, and for engaged conversation with the confidence that both the Bible and nature speak of God. Last week, we had a good time together. Uh, The church is known for being judgmental and hypocritical, and so we're inviting the community, hey, give us a try. Here you'll find a church, certainly not perfect, but eager to accept and walk with all people in grace and humility, regardless of their faults, flaws, and failures, just as God walks with us all. We all have faults, flaws, and failures, and God is patiently and forgivingly walking with us by grace through Jesus Christ. Today we end our series by owning the fact that the church is known largely for ignoring the suffering in the world. The church has a reputation for spending our resources on ourselves, an inward-focused church, and largely ignoring the suffering in this world. And so we're addressing that today. Now as we address it, I want to give you an example of what it means for someone to kind of buck that reputation and to have the heart of Jesus Christ to help alleviate the suffering in this world. Her name is Jamie Story. She is a middle school teacher here at Rancho Christian. She's got a big heart. I mean, she is beloved around here. She's a member of Rancho Church as well. And she had been hearing over the last several years our vision to start this boarding school in the Embu province of Kenya. Uh, there are right now about 300 of these orphans under care, uh, under the Imani program. and uh, But right now, they're just their needs are being met. They're fed. They're clothed. Their school fees are being paid. But they are orphan kids that really still do not have much of a hope in a future. And the solution for them is a Christ-centered boarding school where they will be loved unconditionally. They will be trained in exceptional education. And they will be equipped to go off to university and then help to change Africa itself. So she got real excited about that. I mean, she's sitting in church, gets excited about that. And she fell in love with these kids, having never met a single one of them. She fell in love with them. She started praying for them. She rallied our school to, to help uh, the Imani Project. And, and she had a goal in her mind that one day I'm going to meet these kids. And so we just had our latest trip to Imani, and uh, a group of about 10 uh, people went. and She was on that trip, and I want to show you a, a picture of the team. And there she is right there, the lady on the left. And, uh, and she went and had a great time. We grand opened the school. It was a wonderful time. It was the achievement of a goal of ours we've had for years but we didn't celebrate that here because she uh, had a medical problem on the way home from the trip. Uh, The flight from Nairobi to Paris uh, became traumatic for her. She had breathing problems. And they were so serious that she went immediately from the plane to the airport doctor, and the airport doctor said she's gotta go to a hospital right now. She cannot fly back to the United States of America, and she's been there ever since. She has pneumonia. It's a very serious uh, pneumonia, and she is battling. She's been in a medically-induced coma, uh, since then, they tried to take her out of that a couple of days ago. It didn't go real well, so she's back in that medically induced coma. She's obviously a young lady. She's got, got kids, and, and our heart is breaking for her, for, uh, for her husband, for her children, and our whole school community is praying for her as well. We hadn't brought that here because the family had been asking for privacy and trying to keep things really, really under the radar. And uh, just recently, they gave us permission to talk about it here. So we want to pray for Jamie. There's a GoFundMe account for her. Uh, The family is experiencing extraordinary um, costs, as you can imagine. They basically had to move to Paris, France. They're all well insured. The trip is well insured, but insurance companies will be blaming each other for the next I don't know how long. And so it's just a very, very complicated uh, scenario here until all that gets worked out. But the thing we're focusing on is her heart, her heart of love. And I remember before um, she went, uh, we had gone through the admissions process for the first fourth grade classes of Imani. And the the target was 50 fourth graders. And she came up to me. I was sitting right there at, at Encore. She comes up to me, and she says with the biggest smile on her face, we have 75 I had no idea what she was talking about. It's <laughs> like, 75 what? I, and in my head, I'm thinking, do I pretend to know what she's talking about? Now, what, are you, what are you talking about? 75 fourth graders in Amani, And that's the first I had heard that we had gone from 50 as a goal to 75. She was so excited. 25 more orphaned kids are gonna have a hope and a future through Imani. This was her heart. This was her passion. And she wanted nothing more than to go there and to see these people and meet these kids. And she did. She got to experience all that she had dreamed about, met these kids, grand opened the school, and now she's struggling. So our, our prayers are with her, our heart is with her, and we are certainly praying for a full recovery because we want her to talk about Imani from the stage. That's our prayer. You know, that's our prayer. Uh, so please pray, pray with us if you could. Jamie's story is her name. Now, her heart is the heart of, of our church, and her heart is the heart of Christ. Uh, Jesus gave a very powerful teaching. It's very famous, very powerful teaching in Matthew chapter 25. And And Jesus is wrapping up his ministry here on earth. He's wrapping it up and he's sharing his priorities, not just by what he did and what he taught early in his ministry, but he's wrapping up his ministry talking about the heart of God. And he paints this picture. He says, One day we're all going to get together. We're all going to get together and we're going to have a little chat about our priorities. And Jesus says this He's going to gather his church together and he's going to say, You know what? I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the church gathered around Christ is like, I don't remember taking care of Jesus. I don't remember giving Jesus clothes or Jesus food. And, and Jesus says this famously. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Very famous passage. But Jesus is saying, this is my heart. This is my priority so whenever we see somebody in need, we see somebody who is poor and lost and lonely and struggling and without shelter, we see somebody who's been uh, labeled an outcast or labeled by religious people a sinner, we look at those folks, our heart should break and say, that is Jesus Christ. That is Christ himself. And we need to love these folks and show compassion to these people. We need to care for people in need. This is the heart of Christ. Now, if you look at the church, the evangelical church, particularly in America over the last 50, 60 years, and you will not see that heart of mercy. You won't see it. It's been nearly absent, and there's a reason for that. Sort of understandable, but I think we need to, I'm gonna use a religious word here that I rarely say. We need to repent, we need to turn from the sin that kept us away from showing the mercy of Jesus Christ to people in need. Over the last 50, 60 years, the church's priorities turned inward. And again, it's understandable. In the 20th century, we went through World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, two cities being decimated by by nuclear uh, war. We had a Cold War with the constant reminder of thermonuclear global destruction, right? And so the church lost its hope that the world would get better. In fact, it created a theological narrative. That the world is only gonna get worse, and that the job of the Christian is to separate from the world, get into our holy huddles towards the goal of getting out of here, a great escape. That's been the theology of the church prevailingly for 50 or 60 years. And what that has resulted in is very obvious, right? Theology matters. What we believe matters. If we believe that the world's gonna get worse and we are to cluster towards a great escape, what's gonna to happen to our priorities? Well, they're gonna get inward and there's gonna be no hope that things are gonna get better. So why would we invest our resources or time into a better world when we don't think that's actually gonna happen? It makes perfect sense, but the entire church, right here and right now, is going through a shift. Many are not going with the ride, but it's a great shift, and we are saying we need to repent of that terrible sin of selfishness and self-centeredness, looking inward, and we've got to get on board with the cause of Christ. And there have been many times in church history where we have done well. In fact, let's go back a little bit. Let's go to the first through third centuries, and you'll see scenes like this. This is art depicting the normal church environment in the early church, and that is a church community giving away you know, alms, giving away help for those that are in need, welcoming in people who are lost, welcoming in sojourners and refugees, and welcoming in people who are sick and abandoned and considered cursed by God. And, and in this sense, uh, this is an uh, artistic depiction of the church helping those who are handicapped. People who were considered cursed, handicapped people were considered cursed. God is cursing you for some sin in your life or some sin in your ancestors. The church says, you've got to be kidding me, right? We're following the example of Jesus Christ and caring for and welcoming these people. Then there's the Renaissance and Enlightenment period. And the Renaissance and Enlightenment period was a rebirth of the intellect and rebirth of vision and rebirth of this Christian thinking that God is going to make this world a better place. And so there was an emergence of art, incredible art. Art emerged during this period. God inspired art that there is beauty to recapture here. And where there is brokenness, there is beauty to be revealed again. And this was in the form of visual art and architecture and music. Not only that, um, houses of education sprung up everywhere, including Oxford and Cambridge as Christ-centered institutions. Every single Ivy League school in America was founded as a Christian school with that Christian ethic that God is in the business of making this world a better place. So we need to equip young men and women in educational institutes that are the finest and send them out and to equip them to change the world. And that's frankly why we're involved in Christian education too. It's not just to fill our our campus uh, Monday through Friday. There is an incredible Christian heritage at play in God's church And it's being rediscovered even now. There's the missionary movement of the 18th and the 19th centuries. And during that missionary movement, there's a lot of great things happening as the message of the grace of God is spread into tribal regions and and far off lands. and, And where there's culture of abuse and inhumanity and constant tribal warfare, things started to improve. So much slowly, but things started to improve. And a little bit later, the abolitionist movement was birthed in the church And and yes, the church early on was involved in slavery, as every Western country was, a terrible, terrible thing, and that is without excuse, but it is the church that rose up and said, this is not in line with the heart of God, these are human beings, they need to be set free, and so it's the Christian church that started the abolitionist movement. And then we have the denominational age, and this is 18th, 19th, even a little bit in the 20th century, the age of denominationalism, where Christian churches would gather together around a single bureaucracy now, Denominations right now are just kind of, ah, that's just a denomination, and they don't have good reputations, and some of it's understandable. But there was a great thing that happened as, in some instances, thousands of churches would band together as a single denomination. There would be a central bureaucracy and a central source of being able to collect some funds and use those funds, big funds, to accomplish big things to help people in big ways. And so in that denominational era, there were hospitals built by the church hospitals built, series of hospitals, series of medical clinics and schools, international charities, relief agencies, serving people with no strings attached, just serving people because they're human beings made in the image of God. There was powerful benefit that came as a result. And just to give you a short list, here's the Red Cross, and this is when they were first formed and they're helping after disaster in New Orleans. Uh, Red Cross was, was formed as a Christian agency, Salvation Army, Compassion International, World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, Catholic Charities, Lutheran Charities, Methodist Charities, all these big denominations doing big things for the cause of Christ. And so right now, there are countless hospitals and clinics and schools and distribution centers, disaster relief agencies, water projects, housing projects, disease prevention initiatives, all in the name of Christ. Institutions that number in the hundreds of thousands doing all kinds of good all over the world still today. Hundreds of thousands of non-governmental organizations in the name of Christ helping people in need, including the two that Rancho helped launch just recently, Plus One Palawano and Imani. This is a powerful thing that happened in the 18th, 19th, and parts of the 20th century, but in the second half of the 20th century, we lost that value because we lost our hope. And just now, the Christian church is starting to be revitalized. So how can we improve? Well, let me just tell you about a couple things. Number one, we've got to uh, sort of fix the, uh, I'm just gonna lazily label it the televangelist problem, and you know what I mean by that, right? There are uh, televangelists like this guy right here, And uh, if you know the story, you know why that's so hysterical. Uh, But there's a a televangelist who are um, out there just frankly robbing people for their own benefit. And these are clowns. These are absolutely clowns. And there's no excuse. Without naming names, I I, I really want to badly, but we'd be here way too long. (laughs) There's a guy who locked himself in a tower and said, God will kill me unless I raise $8 million. The miracle is that $8 million was raised. There's a guy, very famously, who sold faith-healing prayers. And you send a check, and you send a prayer request, and he guaranteed he will personally pray for that prayer request. Well, those envelopes were going straight to several banks in the area. We weren't even going to the ministry. And the banks would take the checks out, cash the checks, and throw away the prayer requests. ABC News found out about it. Just piles and piles of prayer requests in the back dumpster confronted this minister about it. And the minister says, oh, it's a scandal. They were made up prayer requests. He says, in fact, I pray personally over every single prayer request. And he says, I even lay down on the prayer request. I'm like, no thank you. I lay down on the prayer request. He says, I spend so much time handling the prayer request that the ink actually seeps into my bloodstream and has poisoned my bloodstream and made my eyes puffy so I need money for plastic surgery. I'm not kidding you, $80 million a year flowed into his ministry. Yeah. Six televangelists were investigated by the U.S. Senate for their lavish, tax-exempt lifestyles, including fleets of Rolls-Royces, palatial mansions, private jets, and jewelry. Just last year, one of these clowns said, Uh, God is calling me to raise $60 million for a private jet that, quote, is the biggest, fastest, and overall best private jet money can buy because the gospel has to get to the uh, ends of the earth. I mean, this is embarrassing. And some of that, even though there's just a few of these creatures, um, you know, by number, by percentage, they are impacting the reputation of Christianity in powerful ways. Uh, Thankfully, it's not as bad as the 80s and 90s. That was every day some new Jimmy was coming out with a problem, right? Now, we may not have as much because there's more accountability, right? In the information age, there's more accountability and more eyes on that. So that's good. That's good. And so we're getting some relief there. But there's also some more subtle ways that the church tends to manipulate people out of resources to be used for our own purposes, our own kingdoms, Uh, And we've got to be real careful with what we say and how we say it. And so it's very common for church leaders to say, hey, listen, if you give money to God, he will bless your life in return. Have you heard that in any forum in any Christian church? It's just kind of normal. And it's so bad. It is so bad. Because what we're saying is is we're motivating people to give generously so that they will get in return. Do we see how bad that is? That's not as corrupt as the guy locked into a tower, but it is a form of corruption. Hey, we're going to manipulate you. By saying, you will get more if you give more. Well, first of all, it totally, I almost used a kind of naughty word. It totally corrupts the heart of generosity, which is simply to, to help and to give selflessly and sacrificially. But we manipulate people and say, well, it's not a sacrifice, really. It's an investment, right? You give money, God's gonna give more blessing back to you. And some people even say, you give money, God's gonna give more money back to you. Oh, It's an outright fabrication, it is a lie, it is not true. So we say this at Rancho at least twice a year, you give your money here and it's gone, you ain't getting it back, gone, (laughs) bye-bye. And if you're giving it to get more, then keep it because you got better uses for that money, right? And I also have to ask the question of religious leaders who say you give money and you'll get more money in return, why then are you asking for money? Because clearly the pathway to get money is to give it away, so you should be giving it away, not asking for people to give it to you, right? So there's hypocrisy there. So we've gotta really be careful in terms of how we present this. It's a sensitive subject for good reason, right? We've gotta be so careful and have the highest degree of integrity. So you know we can easily target the televangelist types and, and sort of the corruption in the Christian church. That's an easy target, it's tons of fun, but we also have to look at church budgets. We have to look at how churches use their money, not just, just how religious leaders sort of manipulate things, but how churches actually use their budget. I did a lot of research on this. Here's what I found. Churches use 90% of their offering money for their own cause. Now, churches' causes are usually pretty good. You know, you're talking about the grace of Christ, you're welcoming people in community, you're helping people in your community, in your church, Um, you are discipling them in youth groups and children's groups, and you're building a good culture and equipping people. So it's not that using resources for home ministry is bad, that's actually kind of expected, right? Uh, We do a lot of good things in church congregations, but 96% of church offerings for our own church congregation just doesn't seem quite right. On average, 3% is given outside the church for evangelistic works, like missions work, and 1% of the average church budget is for humanitarian efforts. So when the world out there, the mainstream American culture says, hey, church, we think you have maybe a problem and that you're disregarding the suffering of the world, we have to look at these statistics and say, you know what, you're right. You're absolutely right. We've gotta look at how we use our own church's budget. Now this begs the question about Rancho's budget. Uh, Just real quick, 20% of our Rancho budget goes outside the walls of the church, 20%. I'm not saying that's the greatest. I'm not saying we've arrived. Uh, We we have not arrived. And every single year as we work our budgets, and we're in budget season right now, as we work our budgets, we're trying to get that number up, up, up. Now, if you add to that all the special offerings and projects that we've done, humanitarian projects that we do on a given year, that number is 27% of Rancho's total income goes outside the walls of the church. And if you add all the ministries that we manage, for example, um, we uh, launched the Community Mission of Hope during the Great Recession. It's a regional leader in humanitarian services. We manage the Temecula Pantry, which is on the front lines of homeless ministry here in Temecula. We manage Hope Lake Elsinore, uh, which is on the front lines of homeless ministry and families in need in Lake Elsinore. That number is well over a million dollars a year through Rancho Ministries are given away outside the church, primarily to humanitarian ministries. Now, I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying we've arrived, I'm not saying we're the best. I'm just saying that this is what happens when a church resets its priorities. And to be real frank with you, we had to reset our priorities about 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we looked at our budget and said we were the standard 9631. And we had to get better. So every year, just incrementally every year, more, more, more. Cap the amount we spend here in house and more and more of our budget uh, outside the walls, particularly to humanitarian needs. Because you look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, half of his ministry, as detailed in the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, half of his ministry was meeting the needs of people who were lost and desperate and hurting and lonely and labeled sinners. Half of his ministry. And so we gotta look at what we do as a church and say we gotta get on board with that. One of the highlight examples to me in the Bible in terms of an example of a church that's on board with the priority of Christ is the Macedonians. The Macedonians, they were a poor church, but there was a more poor church in Jerusalem getting just creamed with persecution. And so they decided the Macedonian church asked to help out the Jerusalem church they asked and it's almost like there's an assumption well you don't have much to give and they pleaded for the privilege of serving the Jerusalem church by taking up an offering here's what it says the Macedonian church gave entirely on their own nobody even asked them they were so in line with the heart of Christ that they said we want to get on board you didn't ask but we're doing it and they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the poor Part of the, the reason, perhaps, that, that the broader Christian church is not expressing so much generosity is because I think the broader Christian church, including individual Christians, may not consider it an exceeding privilege to give their resources away. I mean, this church couldn't wait. They asked for it. It's a privilege to give. I think we consider it kind of a bother. I mean, if we were to just be honest, is it kind of a bother to give? Well, it's my money and... Things are tough, and the priorities, and I understand it. Believe me, I understand it. My wife and I went through this. Uh, when we went, we went through a very traumatic financial season where we went from two people with low incomes to one person with low incomes and three babies. I mean, traumatic, and, and we had to pull back on a lot of stuff, and giving was pulled back, but we committed to each other, hey, we have to eat, and the Bible said, does say, give out of your abundance, not out of your lack, And so we're not following the garbage, hey, listen, you give, God's gonna give more money. We had a short season there where we just struggled and we pulled back. Whether that was right or wrong, doesn't matter, just was. But we committed that every single year we were gonna get that thing higher and higher and higher. And in short order, we got right back to where we needed to be. Just a period of time. But there's this eagerness to say, it is a pleasure and a privilege to give. And for a while when we were really struggling, we pulled back a bit, but we got right back to it. And, and so I understand what it's like to look at the budget and to say, hey, just purely by the numbers, we're struggling here. But the heart will build something over time that is absolutely wonderful, the heart of the Macedonians. It is a privilege to share. It's a privilege to serve. So we talked about the, the televangelist types. We talked about church budgets. Now let's wrap up by talking about us, you and I. And this is a little sensitive. I'm just telling you, this is not a building campaign. We're not taking up an offering. We're not doing any kind of fundraising here. I guarantee this will not end in a guilt trip. Guaranteed, right? Okay, high fives, we're doing it? Good? All right, high fives, everybody. (laughs) Here's the statistics, just to take a look at. The average American gives, and I'm talking about Christian non-churching, average American gives away 2.5% of their income to charity. Now, I don't know if you consider that to be a low number, high number, just about right. But what I will tell you is on a global scale, this is incredibly generous. The next most generous country gives away about 1.7% of their income to charity. So Americans are blowing away the field. Not just in terms of generosity, but in terms of even how the government spends money towards humanitarian efforts, it's really extraordinary. When, When you hear people say we live in the most generous country on earth, that is statistically true by a long shot. I will argue that that's because our foundation was based on a Judeo-Christian ethic of generosity. And, uh, and, and even though there's been a, a chasm between the mainstream American culture and the church, I believe that ethic, that ethos is still there. That's why we are so generous. But you know, whether you consider that to be a lot or a little or just right, that's just something to take a look at. Now, here's something else to take a look at, and it is fascinating. And, um, and I have studied this again a ton, and most numbers bear this out. Lower income Americans give away 3.2% of their income. The poorer you get in America, the more you give. That's shocking, especially when you consider that poor Americans don't have tax deductions. They don't even get benefit on charitable deductions, yet they're giving away more than any other demographic in America. The more money you have, the less generous you get in the United States of America. Look at those numbers. Now, there's a lot of upper-income folks that uh, go to Rancho, um, and uh, some of them are friends of mine, and I'll tell you, that doesn't apply to them. This upper-income mess here, and uh, two of them in particular spend a lot of their energy going to their other upper-income friends and say, hey, dude, loosen up, right? Holy cow, look at all you have. Look at where you live. Look at what you drive. Are we serious? We can't let this problem of suffering continue in our community or in our world. And so hopefully there's a movement of generosity among those who are, are better off, um, and it sure feels like that, that's coming. So we talked about America in general, what about the Christian church? America gives 2.5% of their income, the Christian church gives 2.5% of their income. Now again, whether you think that's a lot or a little or just right, the reality remains, there is no difference between the non-Christian generosity and the Christian generosity. The only exception to that are church-going evangelical Christians. They're the highest, and they're just over 3%. So that's, that's good, and I think many of us would categorize ourselves as that, so that, that's pretty cool. But on average, Christians give the same as non-Christians. And so it's just something we have to wrestle with. And all of us have to wrestle with that in the confines of our own home and the confines of our own budgets. And we've gotta ask ourselves, okay, how are we contributing to alleviating the suffering in this world? because the suffering is real. I mean, the world is that big right now. We know where there, are su- where there is suffering. Right now, the pinnacle of suffering or the epicenter of suffering is in the refugee population right now. And I'm telling you, Christians look like idiots right now in terms of how we're dealing with a refugee pro- pro- problem. We look like idiots. And we've gotta, we've gotta get our heads around something different. There are millions and millions of people without homes, suffering intensely, and what ends up happening when kids are raised in these uh, these horrible situations, whether it's refugee camps or wandering aimlessly, having no home, they are raised without hope and they have very, very few options. We've got to do better, we've gotta do better. I'm gonna ask two questions, and they are uh, are leading questions, (laughs) so, And they're obvious questions, but I want you to just walk with me on this little final road here. Do we agree with the priority of Christ that helping people in need is important? Simple question. It is not a trick question. It's leading, but it's not a trick question. Do we agree with Christ's priority that helping people in need is important? What's the answer? Yeah, of course. Second question. Do we want to participate, regardless of whether we are participating with time or treasure, do we want to participate in making the world a better place by helping people in need? What's the answer? Yes. Okay. A little less, fewer yeses there. Um, But those are two yeses. We would all say yes to those questions, right? Um, I think you're afraid of where I'm going with this. It's really a nice place, a safe place, and a wonderful place we agree with the priority of Christ that helping people in need is important. We want to participate, whether we are or aren't, we want to participate. I think that's enough. I think that's enough to create a culture where amazing things can happen. If we have a culture and a community that is dedicated to getting on board with the the cause of Christ, actually engaged in the cause of Christ, not just talking about it, but actually engaged in the cause of Christ to help people in need, provide opportunities for people to get involved with their time and with their treasure, amazing things can happen in terms of the church getting on board with the priority of Christ, number one. But number two, having the world that has been sort of shunned by the church or a world rejected by the church, I'm telling you, the world, the mainstream American culture will absolutely look favorably on a church that is doing what Jesus did. I think the greatest opportunity the church has to bridge the divide between mainstream American culture and the church, the greatest opportunity we have to bridge that divide is by helping people in need. We used to be really, really good at that. The church used to be really, really good at that. We've been horrible at it for the last 50 or 60 years. We can make the changes to make that happen. And if the church once again assumed its rightful place as the world's leader on humanitarian efforts, making the world a better place because we know God wants to make the world a better place through his people, then we will take our rightful place not only as the leader of humanitarian ministry, but we will take our rightful, respected place as, as the people who are exuding the very heart of God. I just want to close with a, a couple of, of numbers here. $4.2 trillion, that's the amount of money Christians make in America. That's a big number. Christian households bring in $4.2 trillion. Good job, guys. You're doing well. Of that, 2.5% of that is given away to charity, primarily churches. And so that's, one, uh, that's $115 billion given to churches. That's the 2014 number. Churches tend to be pretty stingy in terms of humanitarian giving, just a couple of percentage points. And so let's be generous and say $3.5 billion come from churches to humanitarian projects. $3.5 billion a year, all the churches collectively in the United States of America are given towards humanitarian efforts. Let's just do some tweaking of the assumptions here. And let's just assume that the Christian church says, okay, we're gonna be on a journey, we're gonna kind of repent of this nonsense of the last 50 or 60 years, we're gonna take our rightful place as the leader globally of humanitarian ministries for the cause of Christ, we're gonna up our giving from an average of 2.5% to an average of 5%, and churches are gonna get their acts together and all the boards of all these churches are gonna say year after year, we're gonna to work to get more and more of our resources outside the walls of our church. So let's say 5% average giving among families, and uh, 10% of the church's budget given to humanitarian efforts, that $3.5 billion goes to $21 billion every year given to humanitarian efforts. Let's go nuts, and, and we're probably in a zone right now that's not realistic, but let's just say 7.5% of Christian households, um, that's the amount given away, and churches really get on board with the cause of Christ in this area, and 20% of the budget goes outside the walls of their church. That number goes from $3.5 um, billion to $63 billion a year given from the Christian community to humanitarian efforts. Now, we live in a world of big numbers, right? National debt, national budgets, I mean, federal budgets, the whole thing. So we may not know what $63 billion means, but I do know it's 20 times more than we're doing now just by making a little tweak here and there with every family working their budgets every year to keep creeping that up. Every church boardroom working to get that budget of all these resources outside to help people in need, get on board with the cause of Christ. Little tweaks make a huge difference. 20 times the resources from the Christian church going to help people in need. What does $63 billion do? Let me just give you one example. A few years ago, there was a uh, a Rome summit that gathered national leaders together to, to talk about alleviating global hunger. And the presenter, Dr. Uh, Defoe, noted that the world spends $1.2 trillion on weaponry. Just put that number in your head, $1.2 trillion on weaponry. The food waste amount in the United States of America is $160 billion. Just the amount of food we waste in America is $160 billion. We throw away one third of our food I just kind of think through that. And, and let me tell you how tangible this gets. My wife and I are having this conversation in light of this sermon, just so you know, we listen to our own sermon. And we're looking at our own food budget, which is silly, three teenagers. And anyway, we're looking at our own food budget and we're thinking, and how much food do we throw away? Can we, can we make things differently? Can we throw away less food? Which means our budget actually decreases by a lot. And then what can we do with that? If we took a third of our food budget, and just assume we waste a third of our food, and if we are just smarter and take that third of that food budget and put that to work, I mean, that's real. And, and there's almost no sacrifice, except we are making reasonable portions, and we're not throwing away a bunch of food, right? $160 billion in U.S. food waste alone. Overeating, eating more calories than you need, costs... 20 billion dollars a year. We eat 20 billion dollars worth of food our bodies don't need. 20 billion dollars. Just to put math around it. Again, that can mean something, right? Can we pull back, you know, the actual money we spend on food because we're eating more reasonably and can that be reinvested? These are just creative thoughts. Just creative thoughts. Some of you are laughing, making jokes. I'm with you. This presenter said, to alleviate the entirety of the world's hunger problem, to feed the world's 826 million hungry people would cost $30 billion. Can $63 billion make a difference? That's 60 billion new dollars if we just, just, reallocate a little bit in our personal budgets and we, we reallocate in our church boardrooms. It can really happen, this can really happen. I know it can happen because my wife and I walked that journey of giving here to giving here and every year we wanna keep giving more. We've walked that journey. Our church has walked that journey. It took our family five years. It took our church about five years to make all the adjustments necessary to fit into that math. Can it happen? Yes, it can happen. In five years, it can happen. Now, this sermon and this example is not going to every church in America, but it's going to ours. And and maybe we can take this seriously and maybe we can say, you know what, the church has a reputation for kind of being greedy and stingy and ignoring the suffering of this world and maybe our church can very, in a very real way, continue to grow in this area. We are doing amazing things already. Imagine what could happen going forward. And just to close with this vision, if it is true that the world has largely rejected the church because we are ignoring the suffering of the world, then perhaps if we stop ignoring the suffering of the world we will lift up so brightly the light of Jesus Christ that the world will be drawn to him and drawn to a church that looks very much like him. And maybe people who have rejected church will give it one more try. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the mercy that you showed to us through Jesus Christ. You showed the fullness of your nature by sending your Son, the fullness of divinity, showing mercy, compassion, and Living his entire life in service to other people, particularly those who are hungry, lost, broken, homeless, outcast, labeled sinners, lonely, enslaved. And so we look at the example of Christ, we see the priority of Christ, we see the heart of our Heavenly Father. God, we agree with this priority and we want to get involved. Thank you for a church like Rancho that is very actively participating in alleviating the suffering of the world locally and globally. God, we want to do more. We want to be like the Macedonians. We urgently plead for the privilege of helping more and more people in this world, bearing more and more burdens, relieving suffering in a way that lifts up the light and the love of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that every family would do what they need to do to kind of work what they need to work, help our boardroom and and our elders and, and boardrooms all across churches in America to uh, really do the soul-searching needed, to get on board with the cause of Christ, to alleviate suffering in this world so that we would retake our rightful position as the world's leader in mercy ministries, alleviating suffering to such a degree that the world would take notice, the world would see Jesus Christ in his church and be drawn to our relationship with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.